Turn to Matthew 22. As Jason said, we're going to finish up this chapter. And so before we read, um, I just want to mention and remind us of where we've come in Matthew. So if you're visiting with us or you're new here, um, we, we make it a point to preach through books of the Bible uh, as it's written, verse by verse, section by section. We feel like that's important to get a grasp of what the gospel is and what God's word is to his people, the church. And so we are at the, the end of the chapter and what we've went through so far is that Jesus in, in essence has been systematically just destroying the preconceived ideas that people had about him group by group time after time. He is not who they expected him to be. It, we're, we're told if you look back, we're told in Matthew that the Pharisees marveled at him. We're told that the Sadducees were astounded by him. And prior to the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into town on the back of a donkey, the disciples were just constantly surprised that he wasn't seeking the limelight, that he wasn't trying to make a name for himself. They didn't really understand his purpose and what he was doing. And this is the point that I want to make in this. Jesus is not the man that any of them expected. But he's exactly the man that they needed. Many who have been saved for a long time would probably admit that when they first were saved, their understanding of Jesus is far different than what it is now, years and years later. And sometimes we expect when we're first saved that Jesus is going to come in and he's going to make all of the broken things, he's going to fix all the broken things right away. That life is going to be smooth and easy and and that's not always how things turn out. Um, unfortunately, we end up sometimes portraying that in how we share the gospel, don't we? We, we tell them, you know, just pray this prayer or walk this aisle or accept Jesus and do this and everything will make sense and good things are going to come your way. And if you just believe hard enough, this is going to happen. And the truth is, we are blessed by following Jesus, but not always in a material way. The truth is that a relationship with Christ does bring understanding to the purpose of your life, but it doesn't eliminate every question that you might have. The truth is you might believe God with everything in you for a miracle and your loved one still may pass away. Does this mean that a relationship with God through Jesus Christ is meaningless, is insignificant? Well, absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. But I think if you ask any true believer about the hope that lives inside of them, you'll, you'll hopefully quickly realize that following Jesus may not fix all of your problems immediately, but it's the best thing that ever will happen to you. Because not only do you, you may walk through the dark valleys, but you have someone who never leaves you in those. Okay? Um, so usually, I would say, Jesus is, is quite a different person than we first think him to be. And I don't know that that should be such a foreign concept to us, if, if we're really thinking about it, right? Um, it shouldn't be so strange to our thinking because we have lived, prior to him saving us, we have lived a life of rebellion to God. Constant and regular rebellion where we say, 
God, I'm going to do this my way. The reality is he's got a lot of, of wrong thinking and bad habits to get out of us for us to be able to see him for who he really is. And, and honestly, no one likes being told that they're doing it wrong. Think about the last conversation with your spouse. And you guys know what I mean when I say conversation, right? The last conversation with your spouse. Uh, you didn't like being told you were wrong. And I don't either. So, we're just going to get real for a minute. How many of you guys like going to the doctor? Okay, let's flip that. I see one hand. How many of you guys don't like going to the doctor? That's most of us. And I would venture to say that a lot of you with your hands raised are men. Because men are stubborn. Um, but, you know... Guys, you're out there playing basketball and you like, you snap a, your, your leg. And the tendency is not to be like, quick, somebody call the ambulance. The tendency for guys is like, it's alright, I'll walk it off. You know, I'm just, I'll be okay. Dude, I see your bone. You're not gonna be okay. Um, you know, we have, this is, this is true me every year, I think. You get a head cold, guys. And instead of like admitting that you have a problem and you need to go to see the doctor, you just go buy Walmart out of the tissues and chapstick. You know, you, you, you deal with all of the symptoms, but we don't like to go fix the core of the problem. And for me, at least, I don't know about you other guys, but what do our what does your wife tell you when you cannot you forget what it's like to breathe out of your nose? And she's like. Hey, dummy, just go to the doctor, right? Now, if you have a cold or something like that, it honestly, you, you might be able to just wait it out and it might get better. But if you, if like, if your femur is snapped or you've got a, you've got cancer or something, not going to the doctor will not fix your problem. You guys see what I'm saying? Uh, you cannot get better on your own. And honestly, in reality, it's foolish to think that doing nothing is going to fix the problem. Okay? I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. Many people have the same problem, but spiritually. Same thing, but spiritually. They won't admit the problem is as serious as it really is, and they don't think that it really needs to be fixed. They've got the equivalent of a bone sticking out of their leg and they're saying, no, it's okay. I can do this by myself. I don't need anybody else to tell me what to do or how to get better. Let me say this. This is probably the hardest thing that I'll say today. As long as you're convinced that you're fine and you don't have any problems that need to be fixed, you won't be fixed. I would even dare to say that you cannot be fixed in that moment. A sick person who refuses to admit they're sick won't go see a doctor because they don't see the need. They don't think they really need to go. But a sick person who knows that they're sick and really wants to be healed is going to find a way to get to the doctor. They're going to find a way to figure out how to get better Lots of people in Matthew, lots of people we've seen have come to Jesus with what they thought was their biggest problem. Uh, we've seen people who were blind, people who were crippled from birth, people who were possessed by demons. 
We've seen people with leprosy. All of these things, people came and they thought was their biggest need. Uh, Remember the paralyzed man back earlier in chapter 9? What was the first thing that Jesus said to him? Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't even go at the paralysis, the fact that this man can't walk. He doesn't even talk about that at first. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that this man has a bigger problem than not being able to walk. And Jesus just cuts right to the heart of it. The healer goes right for the most sick part. Being unable to walk was not the man's deepest need. Being forgiven of his sin was. And that's where, why Jesus says what he did. It's, it's likely this man saw Jesus as the answer to his problems. And we may see Jesus as an answer to our problem, but the difference might be is that we have differing views on what our biggest problem really is. Because in conversations with people, saved, unsaved, whatever, religious, not religious at all, many people will admit that they sin. I do, I've done wrong things. That's not difficult to admit. There's really not a lot of, um, pressure or sting to admitting that. Right? But when you start talking about how that sin, that wrong thing is gonna separate them from God forever, then it begins to take on a different meaning. Remember the, the rich young man back in chapter 19 of Matthew? He came to Jesus and he wanted to know how it was that he could follow him. And Jesus, again, not a physical need, but he cuts right to what this man needed the most. Jesus revealed his deepest need when he said, go sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and follow me. He knew that this man didn't struggle with paralysis or some of the other things physically. He knew his deepest sickness was the love of wealth. Okay. He knew his deepest sickness was the love of wealth, and so he cut to the heart of it. And yet this man walked away, continued to be sick, because he did not realize he was sick, that he needed to be saved, that he needed a doctor. The answer that Jesus gave him was not what he expected at all, was it? And yet, it's exactly what he needed. And here's the point. Jesus may not be the man you expect, but he's exactly the man you need. Even today. The more, I think, the more we really understand who Jesus is, um, actually is, biblically is, the more we're going to understand who God really is. And this goes to the Advent reading that Bailey read for us this morning. Hebrews 1, chapter 3, reminds us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I was just talking with my kids about fingerprints recently. Uh, they're an interesting thing. There's a lot of science that goes into this. Police um, have kind of ch- kind of paved the way for that in catching criminals. But every set of fingerprints is unique. You guys have heard that before. I learned this week that even identical twins have completely different sets of fingerprints. Even though they shared the same DNA, their fingerprints are unique. 
no one else in the world has the same fingerprints that you do. And just as kind of a side note, but guess when your fingerprints start forming? Between nine and ten weeks, weeks old. Before some ladies know that they are even pregnant, that child has begun to form fingerprints. That's incredible. That's amazing. Um, there is, there's no two people on earth with the same fingerprints. Everyone is unique except one. One person was exactly like someone else. Jesus was exactly like the Father. And maybe not fingerprints, maybe not the physical aspect of these things, but Hebrews 1 is telling us, is teaching us, Jesus is exactly who God is. You want to see Jesus or you want to see God? Look at Jesus. Right? That's why he says in the verses before that, in, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, he says, long ago, in times past, God spoke through the prophets and the fathers. Now, how does he speak? Through his Son, who is the exact imprint of his nature. Right? This, is, this is the incredible thing. So, you want to know God better in 2019? You want to know God better? Start by learning about Jesus. Start by following Jesus, His Son. You do this by listening to the Spirit and reading His Word. Living by His Word. Now last week, Jesus gave the greatest command. He identified it this way. He gave it, gave the greatest command and praise God, he obeyed this command perfectly because we cannot. Right? He loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind. He loved his neighbor as himself. When we are doomed because we cannot do that, Christ did it on our behalf. Praise God for that. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all these groups that were taking shots at Jesus, trying to trap him, um, they have been now silenced. Done. They have nothing more to say. Uh, they have no more weapons to take shots at Jesus with. Their arsenal has been depleted, and they are no longer going to take shots at Jesus. It says at the end of this chapter, they didn't ask him any more questions. But before that, Jesus flips the script. This is so funny to me. This is so unique. Uh, God's got a sense of humor. He's been answering these questions that were unfair, that were just designed to trick him, and he just sat there and answered it and taught along with it. And now he's answered them all, and he turns and flips the script on them. So let's read chapter 22, verses 41 through the end of the chapter, 46. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Jesus is the one answering the question, and I, 
you know, I just I, th- I think that if Jesus is asking a question, we should probably have an answer for it. And if we don't, we ought to be thinking of how we would answer it. Um, his question that he asks to, to this group, to the Pharisees again, is one of utmost importance. In fact, uh, the greatest commandment was what we shared last week. I would say today we're talking about the greatest question of all time. This is the most important question of all time. What do you think about the Christ? That's what Jesus says. That's what he challenges his hearers with. What do you think about the Christ? Now, it's interesting to note here that he's not really just yet even asking about himself. It's, it's more indirect. He's not saying, I'm the Christ. What do you think about me? Um, he did ask his disciples that question. Who do you say that I am? Right? Um, he's not just yet to these people saying, what's your opinion of me? What he's doing is he's asking for a messianic identification. Okay? What's your opinion about the long-awaited Messiah? He's saying, um, the anointed one, the one you've waited for for so long. Whose son is he? What, what do you know of him? So this honestly was probably a pretty simple question for the people there, the Pharisees who were trained in the law and, and scripture, uh, they were, this is probably a pretty simple question as far as they were concerned. An easy one to answer. But it was probably only easy to them because they didn't know the full answer. They couldn't see everything there. They thought wrongly that the Messiah was nothing more than a human. So the question appeared to them to be very easy to answer. They thought the Messiah's role was going to be political. They thought his identity was going to be human. And Jesus wants to elevate, wants to change, take them to another understanding of who the Messiah is. So he asked them this question and they, you know, kind of sheepishly answer what's already been said of Jesus, but they didn't believe to be true, the son of David. This is this title has been given to Jesus before. Um, if you look back at chapter 12, this is just in Matthew, chapter 12, verse 23, uh, the people who saw the demon-possessed man healed, the demons cast out, said, can this be the son of David? Talking about Jesus. In chapter 20, verse 31, the two blind men, they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Talking about Jesus, chapter 21, verse 15, the children in the temple most recently, probably even the same day that he's having this conversation with the Pharisees, the children in the temple had just said, Hosanna to the son of David. And so when Jesus asked this question, who is the Christ? The Pharisees just kind of give the stock answer here, but I don't think they believe it to be true. These proclamations that we just looked at, the, the the Hosanna to the Son of David by the children in the temple, these, I believe, were designed to be proclamations of Jesus' deity. But the, the Pharisees weren't giving him that yet. They still meant, you're the Son of... The Christ is the Son of David. They meant that as a way to humanize the Messiah. To make him flesh and bone, just like they were. 
But look, just flip back to the beginning of of chapter 1 of Matthew. We're not going to read. I just want you to look back at the genealogy real quick. If you look back at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew, I mean, he goes to great lengths here to establish where Jesus came from. Look at the very first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right from the start, this is who Matthew is identifying him to be. Right from the start. And you can see references to to the family of David, the household of David, uh, the son of David, all through that genealogy. So this is an important phrase. If Jesus had simply been a man, like David, who had died, then he too would have just been a man who would die, like David. And so they were trying to humanize him. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? This last part, whose son is he, was probably an easy question for them to answer too, they thought. The scribes back in Mark chapter 12, verse 35, were told that the scribes taught that the Messiah is the son of David from his lineage. The Pharisees knew that. It was regular teaching. They got that information from the Old Testament, from Second Samuel chapter 7. And also from Psalms. And this is where I want to go to today. So take your Bible and go to Psalm. We'll start in chapter 89. Psalm 89. Verse 3 and 4. Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now look at verse 20 through 24. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. In my name, in my name shall his horn be exalted. Now look at 34 through 37. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all have I sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. God is clearly promising that there would be a son of David who would be the Messiah. This is clear. And this is what Jesus is is going back to when he quotes here. Now, for a long time, people, rather Jesus had told people, "Don't, don't tell the others who I am. He would heal someone and he'd say, hey, keep this quiet. He didn't want his miracles and his godlike behavior quite on display just yet. But now in Matthew 22, there's no way around it. Jesus is clearly establishing his deity. He is making no bones about it. And this is precisely why people wanted him dead. This is why they hated Jesus. 
Because he was saying, the Messiah is here. The light is among you. It's me. Right? There's no question he's claiming to be God, to be equal with God. But look at what he's doing. I find this very interesting. He, he's building on the revelation of the triumphal entry days earlier. Look back at what he was starting to say about himself. 21 verse 3 of Matthew. He was talking about the donkey that he was going to ride in on. And he said to the disciples, he said, Say, the Lord has need of it. Verse 13 in chapter 21, speaking about the temple, Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer. My house. Chapter 21, verse 15 and 16, the children in the temple, as we referred to earlier, were calling him the son of David. And the chief priests, it says, joined right in and called him the same, right? No. The chief priests were indignant that Jesus let them call him the son of David. See, Jesus is moving all of our hearts, all of our minds in this direction of recognizing who he really is. He's the Messiah. Look back at Matthew 22, verse 43 through 45. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? There's, there's a logic to what he's getting at here. And it's kind of tough to follow. And so this um, blueprint is helpful. Uh, this analogy is helpful. Um, go, go now to Psalm 110. This is where Jesus is getting this. Psalm 110. Verse 1. Uh, before we read verse 1, somebody tell me, this is a psalm of who? Psalm of David. Now, does that mean that it was written to David? No, it means that it was written by David. Keep that in mind. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, it's pretty straightforward, right? The Jews read this. The Pharisees knew this verse. Uh, okay, good deal. Read that before. Thanks for that blast from the past, Jesus. You know, we're good. Um, but he had something different in mind to show them. The Pharisees agreed, I think, here that Jesus is referring to the Messiah. I think they probably agreed with that. Um, it's the same there's there's a key phrase here that I want to talk about for just a second. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, he says, David prays in the Spirit. Right. This is, I think, important. And, and, and for this reason, uh, this is the same Greek phrase that is used in Revelation that refers to John being in the Spirit. Okay? It means, I think, to be under the control of, of the Holy Spirit. He's not obviously talking about human spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so David is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he calls the Messiah Lord. 
The phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, contains, as Jason shared with the kids, two different Hebrew words for the word Lord. And this is where we need to make this distinction. And he did already. The first word means Yahweh. Hebrew covenant name for God. Second, Lord is Adonai, which means more a Lord or Master. This is why if you look in your translation of Psalm 110 verse 1, a lot of our translations have the first Lord in all caps and the second Lord with just the capital L to distinguish these two phrasing, these two designations. So in Psalm 110 verse 1, David is saying, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Yahweh says to my Adonai. He's distinctly saying that the Messiah, David, is distinctly saying that the Messiah is his Lord and Master, his Adonai. So he, David is making this distinction. Now, this may mean little to us, speaking English in 2018. But for Jews in this century, this was a huge revelation to them that they were having trouble understanding. And so it's important for us to get this wrapped, our minds wrapped around this. And so Jesus' reasoning is very clear, and it's this. He's saying, Son of David is your title for the Messiah. Yet David himself calls him Lord. The Messiah then must be more than just a physical descendant, a son of David. According to this verse in Psalm 110, this son of David was even was present during David's time and was greater than David. It, so, kids, here's an answer to one of your questions. In a, in a strong patriarchal society, the son would bow to the father as a sign of respect. But the father would never address the son as Lord. Not necessarily because he didn't love his son, but you just didn't do that. Now, sometimes the son refers to the father as Lord, but the father doesn't refer to the son as Lord. So there's no beating around the bush here. Jesus is claiming that he is the Messiah. Right? He's been hinting. He's been leading up to it. He's not keeping the kids quiet in the temple when they're calling him the son of David. And now he's just coming right out. I'm the Messiah. Think back to chapter 21. Last chapter. I said it earlier. This, this May, chapter 21, the events of that day, chapter 22, it's, it still might even be the same day that we're talking about all these things recorded at. I, I mentioned earlier that Jesus had answered all of the Pharisees' questions, but that's not entirely true. He hadn't answered one. He did not answer one of their questions. Remember what it was about? It was their question when they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So the question Jesus did not answer, hadn't answered before, was about his authority. He's wrapping this up. He's trying to help, I think, even some of these Pharisees understand. He didn't answer their question before. But he's going to answer it now. 
And it's going to have earth-shattering, world-shaking ramifications for the Pharisees, for the Israelites, for you and I today. The, the way he answers this is vastly important. When he talks about his authority, it's important. So now he's saying, guys, I'm going to tell you the authority. I'm going to let you know. The authority by which I do all of these things is based on what I just said from Psalm 110.1. I am the Messiah. And I am more than just a man. I am God. I'm the the long-awaited one you've been waiting for. Friends, today, here, you and I are faced with and have to answer the same question that Jesus asked to the Pharisees. And we may think this is an easy question right on the outset. We may think we know who Jesus is. But the question that we have to answer is, what do you think about the Christ? Who is he? Jesus phrased it to his disciples a different way. He says, who do you say that I am? We have to answer this question today. Because the answer to this question has eternal ramifications for us. Eternal consequences. What kind of authority do you give Jesus in your life? He answered the question for the Pharisees. The authority by which he does this is God himself because he is God. Is he God in your life? Does he have that kind of authority? Do you submit yourself to his rule? Or do you fight to maintain a semblance of control? (laughs) What do we do? How do we answer this question? If Jesus is truly God's son, then the answer to this question is in fact the most important one of all. Your eternity hangs in the balance on how you answer this. My eternity hangs on the balance. What do I think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? We, we think of him as the baby in a manger, and we're right to. We celebrate that this time of year. But he proved who he was by going to the cross in your place and rising again to prove that it was all true. Every fulfillment of the law was done in him. Who is Jesus to you? Um, I shared this with our, our group at Angel's Wings this week. My wife is not feeling well. She's not here today, but she wasn't saved until she was 17 years old. And she lived in O'Fallon in a subdivision. It's not like she lived, you know, some secluded life somewhere. Uh, went to Fort Zumwalt South, maybe. I probably got that wrong and she'll be real mad because there was a rivalry or something. But um, she went to one of the Fort Zumwalt schools. Uh, and and she, she is, she's told me, she said, until I was saved, I never knew that Jesus was anything more than a baby in a manger. That's, that's incredible to me in such a sad way uh, for a 17-year-old person in our culture to not ever see Jesus as anything more than a baby in a manger that you sing songs about at Christmas time is, is a travesty in my mind. And so inevitably, if that's the case, inevitably you've got family that are in the same boat. So do you think enough about Jesus to tell them the truth this Christmas time? 
what do you think about Christ? Does he have the authority in your life to tell you what to do and what to say? If you're not sure if Jesus holds that place in your heart, in your life, um, I'd encourage you to grab a member of the church that you know goes here and talk to them and say, what do I do about this? How do I address this issue? I'm not sure if Jesus has the authority in my life. Help me. Don't quit until you know for certain that he's your Lord. We know, those who know him, we know him to be the most incredible person, the most incredible thing to ever happen in our lives. And if that's true of you, then what you have to say about Jesus is more important than any gift someone unwraps from you this season. So take the time. Be bold in your witness when you're with family. Even if you think they all know Jesus already, take the time to show the authority that he has in your life. Jesus may not be what you expect, but he's exactly who you need him to be. Let's pray. Lord, when I wake up and I roll out of bed each day, I don't know what I'm going to face. My friends here, they don't know what kind of challenges or difficulties they're going to face. They may face just another routine day at the job. They may face um, harrowing news of a loved one who's sick or gone. Lord, they may face real challenges in their marriage, in their families. Lord, we don't know what we're going to face. God, but... If you reign supreme in my life, in our lives, it almost doesn't matter what we face because you don't change. And so we thank you, Lord, that when we, when we see you for who you are, or at least begin to see you for who you are, Lord, that we get to know God the Father that much better as well because Jesus is the exact imprint. So Lord, Many of us are going to say this new year, Lord, we want to know you more. We want to know you better. Jesus, I want to walk with you more closely. And so, Lord, we're we're asking that of you. And we know from your word that if we ask that sort of thing of you, you will provide it. You will give that kind of a prayer. And so, Lord, as we face and wrestle with that question of what do we say about Jesus? What do we know of Christ? Lord, I pray that we would be convinced in our hearts that he is true, that he is our Savior, that he is our God. Lord, he, he may not be what we thought originally. He's who we need him to be, Lord, and so much more. He is sufficient for all the things in my life that I need. And Lord, I know he's the same for everyone who calls on his name. And so, Lord, be with us as we sing, as we reflect on what you've shown us today. Lord, um, have control. Be our boss. We give you authority in our lives to do what you will. Mold us as the potter molds the clay into something that gives you glory. In your name, amen.